Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 and verse 27. While you're turning there, let me just explain a little bit. I had Steve read from Amos 9 earlier, and sometimes you don't always go over those passages in the course of uh, the sermon. Uh, but all of these passages that we read during the scripture reading are in some ways related to the passages that we're in uh, for the message. In Amos 9, uh, God is promising the Israelites of a day to come when His salvation and not His judgment will be poured out on His people. And He will turn away from His wrath against them and turn to pour out upon them endless blessings. And in the midst of that scene where God is promising blessings, one of the things He promises them is that their their land, the picture of the land, will be so blessed that the plowman and the reaper will at the same time be enjoying the harvest. That as soon as the seeds are sown, the harvest already Begins, And this is just a picture of God's blessings being poured out on His people. And I wanted to explain that because we're not going to get into it much, but this, this is the image that Jesus Himself uses in our text this morning when He begins to teach His disciples that the day of the Messiah, the day of the Christ has arrived, which means the day of eternal life and salvation has come. So I want to pick up with you where we left off last week in John chapter 4 and read beginning in verse 27 down to verse 42. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. 
They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard of ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful this morning because the grace that You pour out upon Your people is a surprising grace. A shocking grace. A grace and a salvation offered to a sinful people. Lord, we rejoice because You do not look at our sinful and wicked and rebellious state and leave us. But You have given us Your Son. You have sent Him to us. So that if we believe in Him, we can have all assurance that eternal life in Your presence, blessings and honor and glory for all eternity will be ours in Christ. Father, I pray for this morning that as we hear from Your Word, You would give us pure joy as we see Your grace in action to a despised Samaritan people. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Whenever you read the Bible and your personal devotions, personal studies, whatever the case may be, it's good to get into the habit of asking lots of questions. Questions about what you are reading. You don't want to just ask any question. You, don't, you want to ask good questions. You don't want to ask bad questions. Bad questions will inevitably just lead you into the realm of vain speculation. So not every question that you get asked whether in your Bible study or whatever the case may be, is always a good question. You want to avoid, when reading the Bible, asking bad questions. So, for example, here's a bad, bad question. Medieval Christianity, many Christians, especially the Christian scholars, the scholastics, went off into all kinds of vain speculation about philosophical questions and theological questions that had nothing to do with the actual Bible. So some of them, and sometimes modern day Christians will actually joke about this, but some of them actually speculated about how many hypothetical angels could dance on the head of a needle. Sounds like a question that would be very edifying, wouldn't it? (laughs) Or not. That's an example of a bad question that has nothing to do with the text of Scripture. Uh, Scripture says nothing about that directly. It says nothing about that by implication. You want to ask good questions when you read the Bible. Good questions are the kinds of questions that seek for clarity, that seek for understanding, that seek to come to a better knowledge of whatever the subject is. Good questions regarding the Bible are the kinds of questions 
that arise from reading the Bible itself. They, they come naturally out of the text. So we've been going through the Gospel of John. And at the end of the Gospel of John, John says this, very last chapter, very last verse. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This verse, at the end of John's Gospel, tells us that John has been selective in how he has written the Gospel. He's been selective on what stories to include, what accounts of Jesus to include, what memories he has of Jesus to include, and which ones to exclude. And even if this verse at the end of John's Gospel was not there, we would naturally ask that good question because we would have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find stories about Christ that are not in the Gospel of John. So the question that arises is why does John feel it necessary to teach us about certain stories and leave other ones out? What is so important, for example, about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus? No one else writes about Nicodemus. But something about that encounter stood out in the mind of John, and he believed it would be beneficial for you and me to hear. That's the question as well, as we've been going through the fourth chapter of John, looking at the Samaritan woman, that's a question that I've been asking a lot. John is the only one who has recorded Jesus' interactions with this Samaritan woman. There was something about this event that was incredibly important and impactful to him. So much so that he believed it would also be incredibly important and impactful for those who read his gospel. For you and me. What was it that was so important about this Samaritan woman? And this exchange between her and Jesus? Well, I think one answer, at least, we could point to is that this was the very first time Jesus clearly revealed Himself as the Christ. Other things had pointed to this conclusion. John the Baptist's preaching was all about Jesus of Nazareth being the Christ. John the Baptist himself spoke very plainly and said, this one is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus turned the water into wine, this was an indication that the age, the day of the Christ had come. When Jesus was teaching Nicodemus and had the exchange with him, He spoke to Nicodemus very clearly and said that He, as the Son of Man, must be lifted up just as the serpent in the wilderness in the days of Moses was lifted up so that all who believe in Him 
should not perish, but have eternal life. He's, he's speaking there to Nicodemus that life is found in Him. This is also an indication that He's the Christ. But with the Samaritan woman, we find the very first time when Jesus says very plainly, I am the Christ. John 4.25, the woman says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, that is Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. What made this so significant, I believe, to John, was that the clarity of this revelation was not given to the Jews. It was given to the Samaritans. To a Samaritan woman. A woman rejected by the Jews as a half-breed and a woman rejected by her own people as a woman who is completely lost because of her immoral lifestyle. It was to this woman that Jesus spoke plainly and said, I am the Christ. So this would obviously have been a very impactful moment for John. But John doesn't end the story there. That's where we left off last week. He continues. He goes on to describe in the verses we're in this morning what happened after this revelation. What happened after Jesus clearly revealed Himself as the Christ. And the question is the same. What is so important about what happened after Jesus revealed Himself as the Christ. What was so impactful for John when the disciples returned to Jesus and found Him speaking with a Samaritan woman? Why was this important? Well, I think that as we move through the text, what we discover and what John aims to encourage us as readers of His Gospel with, it's not only the grace of God given in the salvation of sinners, but the surprising nature of it. The surprising nature of the grace of God. God delights. He takes pleasure in revealing His glory and salvation in very surprising ways. Not by way of acting in any way contrary to who He is. Not in any way acting contrary to what is revealed in His Word. I mean, the very thing that Jesus is doing to the Samaritan woman here in giving and offering her eternal life, this was already foretold to have happened. In the Old Testament. So he's not acting contrary to his word. That's not what I mean by surprising. What is surprising is that the way he saves and brings his salvation is by way of taking what is lowly, despised, rejected in this world and making it into something for his glory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
Friends, if you are a Christian, God has revealed Christ to you as your Savior, recognize that according to the world, you are a fool. But in the eyes of God, this is wisdom. God has chose. This is what He delights to do. To choose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And this is what we clearly see taking place in this case in our passage this morning. We pick up in verse 27. Jesus has just finished revealing Himself as the Christ to the Samaritan woman. And it's at that moment that His disciples return. And they are shocked at what they find. They are shocked. Verse 27, it says, Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. They marveled. This was not a good kind of marveling. They were not celebrating what they were seeing. This was, this was a shock. This was offensive. They were astonished by what they had just come upon. It's a very negative idea that is being referred to here. Because Jesus is not only speaking to a woman, but He's speaking especially to a foreign woman. A Samaritan. Jesus was their rabbi. And if it was according to custom and culture that Jews did not associate with Samaritans, it was most especially the case that a Jewish rabbi would have nothing to do with a Samaritan woman. She's a half-breed. The risk of becoming unclean and tainted by her sin was too great. Yet here was their rabbi speaking with this foreign woman. And they didn't like it. They were shocked. But they weren't open about it. They didn't let their feelings be known. John is telling us in this passage how they felt. Because he adds, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? If you're reading from the ESV, it's very literal at that point. Another way of putting these questions would be, what do you want from her? What are you doing with this woman? Why are you speaking with her? John says, the disciples didn't say that to Jesus. That's what they were feeling. That's what they were thinking. They were in shock. Then in verses 28 and 30, the woman leaves her water jar and goes back to her town. She begins to tell everyone about Jesus. She suggests to them that this perhaps might be the Christ. There's, There's actually still a little bit of doubt in her own mind. But she is at least telling them in such a way that it's compelling to this entire town so that the entire town of Sychar begins to leave and starts to come to Jesus. Now keep in mind, keep in mind that this was all taking place on the same day. Jesus' interactions with the Samaritan, the disciples, the people from the town coming out, this was all on the same day. Around noon, 
Jesus and the Samaritan woman met. By the end of the day, the entire town was coming to Him. This is the scene. This is the context we need to keep in mind as we consider what Jesus says to His disciples in verses 31-38. The disciples come to Jesus. They're shocked by what they find Jesus doing. Later, all of the Samaritans and Sychar start coming to Jesus in between these two occasions. In between these two events, Jesus begins to teach His disciples about what they are witnessing. That's what meanwhile means in verse 31. Literally, it says, in the between time. In the between time, Jesus' disciples arriving to the people of Samaria, coming to Jesus, Jesus begins to teach His disciples about what He loves to eat. His food. What sustains Him. He begins to teach them about this otherworldly spiritual food that is better for Him than anything He could ever eat in this world. Verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought Him something to eat? Now this was not a question that the disciples were actually wondering about. They knew He didn't have any food. They knew nobody brought Him anything to eat. The way they're asking this question is by way of expressing a lot of doubt. They are essentially saying to one another, nobody's brought Him any food, have they? We know He has no food. So what is He speaking about? And Here again, what we find Jesus doing is saying something that provokes misunderstanding. He's doing it on purpose. The same thing we found Him doing with the Samaritan woman in the beginning of their interactions. Remember, He offered to give to her living water. She didn't quite understand what He meant by this living water. Jesus was speaking to her about salvation, about eternal life, about the Spirit of God working within a person, welling up to eternal life. She she didn't understand because she only was understanding His words very literally. Jesus is doing the same thing here with His disciples. The misunderstanding provides Him with an opportunity to clarify what He means with spiritual truth. Which is what He does in verse 34. Verse 34, My food, He says, is to do the will of Him who sent Me and to accomplish His work. Obedience to the Father. Carrying out the Father's will, Jesus says, that's My food. That's what gives Me strength. More than anything else that I could eat, the will of God and His work, that's what brings Me satisfaction. And when Jesus says this, He's not just speaking metaphorically. He means it. 
on this earth for Christ. And this is a, this is a lesson for all of us because the same applies to us. But on this earth, that which brings Jesus the most joy and the most strength is the will of God and carrying it out. The life-sustaining, life-giving Word and work of God. We see this in Jesus, especially carried out in His temptations. Familiar with His temptations? He goes out in the wilderness in the very beginning of His ministry. He's out there for 40 days and 40 nights. There's nothing to eat. He's being tempted to see whether or not He is indeed the Son of God. Not in the view of God, but Satan. Satan comes and he tempts him with food. Remember what Jesus says? He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He's hungry. It's been 40 days. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus feeds on doing the will of God. That, that above all, can sustain and strengthen the soul. What is it? What is the work of God? What is the will of God that Jesus delights in doing? Well, that's what He begins to explain to His disciples by way of an illustration from agriculture. In verse 35. Verse 35, He asks, Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? This was a saying that people would use to describe the time in between sowing the seeds of whatever crop it may have been and reaping the harvest. Just a common saying among people involved in agriculture. I'm not a farmer by any stretch of the imagination. I have no clue about farming. But I will say, I'm pretty sure that it is impossible to sow seed, and then the next day to reap the harvest. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen ever. There's a time in between. There's a delay. This is the normal course of things. So that's what Jesus begins by laying out. This This is how things work. This is how you say things work. But Jesus is going to take this saying and point out that in the harvest of eternal life, this principle doesn't necessarily apply. The Word of God, when it is sown, can and does produce instant fruit. Notice what he says at the end of verse 35. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Verse 36, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. A better way to put it is into eternal life. He's gathering fruit into eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now what does this mean? What is he saying there? Remember the context. 
Remember the scene that we are in. Jesus has been speaking to this Samaritan woman about eternal life. He has clearly revealed that He is the Christ to her. And at that moment, His disciples return. And they're shocked at what they find. Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman. And what does the woman do? She leaves at that point. She goes into her town. She begins to tell the people from the town about this man Jesus, about what He has said concerning her life. He's told me everything I've ever done. Speaking a little bit in hyperbole there, but she's saying there is something about this man. Can he be the Christ? She's telling many, many people in the town about this. And the people of Samaria, this town, start leaving. They start coming out to see what's going on. Who is this man. And as they're making their way to Him, Jesus is teaching His disciples about a harvest that is ripe. It's ready. The fruit is bursting. It is ready to be reaped. It is ready to be enjoyed. And He also, in these verses, tells His disciples to look. To lift up their eyes and see. Now what would the disciples have seen? Here they are, speaking to Jesus. Jesus teaching them about a harvest. He's saying, look, the harvest is ripe. And right after that, maybe an hour, maybe even less time, they begin to look. And on the horizon, they see one person coming. They see another person coming. They see families coming. They look over the horizon and an entire town of people from Samaria are now coming to see Jesus. Some commentators have pointed out that Samaritans would often travel with white garments. It's hard to know whether or not that's exactly the case. But you can see where the imagery would be playing. The fields are white for harvest. The disciples are seeing, and on the horizon, the entire town of Sychar is coming to Jesus. The Samaritans are coming in droves. And so when Jesus says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit into eternal life, He's referring to Himself as the reaper. And His wages... And the fruit He's gathering are the people. The people of Samaria. The people beyond Samaria. And in this case, as the disciples would see, the Samaritans themselves. He is saying that He is giving to them eternal life. That's His food. That's what He loves to do. That's what He's working for. Friends, that is a sweet word for we who are also sinners like the Samaritans. You wonder, what are the things that God loves? What does He delight in? He loves to give eternal life. He loves to take the lowly and despised, the people like the people of Samaria, and give to them salvation. That's His food. 
And that's what Jesus loves to do. Jesus, Jesus doesn't end there. He doesn't end by saying He alone will and is reaping and enjoying the harvest. He ends by commissioning His disciples to do the very same thing. Verse 37 and 38, But here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent. This word here kind of has a past tense idea, right? I sent. I've already done it. In the original though, it's kind of more of a, a present and a f- with future implications. It's more like I am sending. So notice that. He's saying, really, I am sending you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Others have done the work of sowing, Jesus says. The prophets have done the work of sowing. The Old Testament has been given, has been recorded as seed. And it is to grow and to produce fruit. Already from long ages ago, I have already promised about the Messiah. I have already promised that the Christ would come and bring salvation, not only to my people Israel, but to all of the nations. I have already spoken through the prophets that a day will come when the nations will be streaming into Zion and will be bowing before the King of Israel. The prophets have already sown seed. They have already done the work. John the Baptist, this is what his entire ministry was about. Preparing the way for Jesus to come as the Christ. He has done the work of sowing. He has done the work of tilling the ground. And even the Samaritan woman, Jesus has just finished speaking with her. And what is she doing? Going into her town and telling them all that the Christ has perhaps arrived. So all of these people, before the disciples, have been doing the work of sowing. And now Jesus is saying, you disciples, you are being sent to reap. To enjoy the fruit of the harvest. Now, if the disciples were shocked by what they saw Jesus doing when He was speaking to this Samaritan woman, imagine their surprise when they saw the entire town of Sychar. An entire Samarian town coming to their Lord. Imagine their shock when witnessing this, they begin to understand that their ministry themselves would be to this people. They didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. And yet Jesus is saying, this is what I am commissioning you as well for. In the last few verses, we find the Samaritans coming to Jesus, begging Him to stay with them, which He does, it says, for two days. And therefore who also was with Jesus, was His disciples in the midst of these Samaritans who they wanted nothing to do with 
for two days. And they're hearing the Samaritans at the end making a good confession. that We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What the disciples discovered, what John, as one of the disciples, discovered, was not only in this moment the greatness of God's grace, but especially for them, the surprising nature of it. They had no prediction, no understanding about what Christ was doing until Jesus showed them with their own eyes, this this is the field. And today is the day of harvest. Friends, God delights in saving the unsavable. This was a principle that the disciples had to learn. And even after this moment, in the book of Acts, we see it as something the early apostles are still having to come to grips with. Gentiles, you and me, people streaming to the Jewish Messiah. God delights, however, in saving the unsavable and doing what to the wisdom of the world appears to be foolish. Let me just close by giving you just one takeaway from all of this that we see Jesus doing. It's easy, I know, it's very easy to look at yourself, to evaluate yourself, and to come up with all kinds of reasons why you could have no effect, could have no purpose in the kingdom of God and in the mission of God, what He's doing. It's very easy. You can do it all the time. Maybe you think you're not educated enough. You don't know the Bible well enough. Something that always needs to be improved, no matter if you are a scholar of Scripture. You always grow. But maybe that's one of the things you struggle with. I just don't know enough. I'm not articulate enough. No one would listen to me if I begin to speak to them about the Gospel. That's for someone else. God is not going to use me for His kingdom. God wouldn't use me for His mission. I'm just not qualified enough. Maybe you think, maybe you think that people just don't listen to you or respect you for whatever other reason it may be. Insecurities. The way you feel about yourself. Your past. Whatever it may be, you just do not think that people would listen to you if you were to tell them about Messiah. And you don't think that God would ever use you in His kingdom for His purposes. And so because of these reasons, you see yourself as completely irrelevant in the kingdom of God. Just someone to be here and to show up and to occasionally do some little thing that someone asks you to do. God would not use me, you say or believe. Brothers and sisters, I want to just encourage you and give you this takeaway this morning from this passage and remind you simply 
Who was it that God used to save an entire town? It wasn't the disciples. It wasn't the guys who knew Jesus and who had seen Him and who had all the reasons in the world to say, we know He's the Christ. We've seen Him change water into wine. We've seen Him work great miracles and wonders. We've heard Him teach. We know what He teaches. It wasn't them. They didn't want anything to do with what God was doing. Who did God use? He used a Samaritan. A woman. A Samaritan woman. Despised by everyone else. Probably lacked in education. Who knew very little of Scripture. What did she know? She knew this was the Christ. And she went and she spoke. And God used this sinful woman to bring an entire town to Himself. God delights to take the foolish things of the world and use them for His glory and His purposes. And if you consider yourself to be of no value in God's kingdom, this story is for you to take heart to rejoice in God. That no matter what inadequacies you believe you have, that is the very thing God will use to bring others to Himself. Your weaknesses will reveal the strength of God. The danger, the danger that we often get into is taking the other course. Making ourselves strong, wise, mighty, articulate, if we are able to defend the faith with all reasoning capabilities, with all philosophical arguments, with all the best theology that is out there, if we could just be that strong, then God will use us to save a people. Wrong. He may indeed do that. But I tell you, what He delights in the most is the foolish things of the world. Charles Spurgeon Baptist forefather, one of the great preachers that preceded us, Charles Spurgeon was converted not by some great preacher. He was converted not by some great work of theology. Charles Spurgeon stumbled into a church one day where there was a preacher filling in for the main preacher. And this preacher had no eloquence, had nothing about him. Spurgeon remembers mainly that the only thing this preacher was saying, you need to look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. That's all he said. And as Spurgeon heard that preacher preach, he believed on the Lord Jesus. God worked in his heart to save him in the foolishness that was being preached. Friends, take heart. God delights in using foolish things. And so if you consider yourself to be of no value, recognize that it is as such as these that God delights to use for His own glory. Would you pray with me?
Father, I rejoice this morning in Your wisdom. I rejoice in the grace that You work in the world in surprising ways. Using weak, ungodly sinners. Redeemed by grace. Using the foolishness of this world to bring people to Yourself. I rejoice in the day the salvation of the Samaritans. I rejoice in the day my own salvation and the salvation of everyone in this room. Father, I ask that You would, whenever we are tempted by the devil himself and by our flesh to believe that You could never use us, I pray that we would remember the Samaritan woman And that we would trust that in You and in Your power alone comes salvation. And that You rejoice to use fools such as us. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. 